We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Good afternoon here on the 4th of July. Throwing a little love down to our friends south of the border. They deserve a little love, don't they? Sure they do. It's the 4th of July. It's red, white, and blue and hot dogs. Whatever color that turns into. <laughs> when Joey Chestnut finishes. Do they think those people hold those down? I don't know. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today on Hamilton Today. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the new short week. Lovely off a long weekend. We get to have a short week. Glad you are along with us. If you're an American, happy 4th of July. If you're a Canadian, happy belated July 1st. Happy Canada Day. Scott did an excellent job. He usually does. There's been a couple times when he's whiffed on this, but he did an excellent job selecting the week this summer to take off in July that nailed it in the weather. I mean, the weekend was, but he's nailed it the rest of the week, assuming you like it warm and maybe warm is not even sufficiently descriptive. If you like your armpits to be stuck to themselves, if you like to, when you were When you wear short pants and you were a kid on a day like this, you'd sit in the front seat of the bench seat of your family station wagon. And when you went to sit up, you'd go, because your leg would be stuck to the fake leather, the faux leather seat. It's that kind of day. And it's going to be that kind of day all week. Ross Hall is a meteorologist with Global News who joins us now. Ross, how are you today? Hey, Scott, I am doing good. Wow, I'm in an air-conditioned studio at the moment, but uh, what you've just been describing uh, certainly makes me, uh, I'm starting to get uh, warm and <laughs> uh, and sticky just thinking about what you're talking about there. And I know exactly what you mean in terms of uh, cars that didn't have air conditioning back, uh, well, back in the day. Uh, for some of us, and uh, yeah, this is a uh, this is great weather if you're a summer fan. If you're a fan of summer weather, uh, but it can be tough for some as well with the mm. high humidity. You ever you ever have that leg stuck to the faux leather seat experience? The short pants. Oh yes, I, I have to say <laughs> I've I've had that experience, and uh, yeah, I remember the bench seats as well yeah. in some of the vehicles too. So uh, yeah, that uh, that you know that's one of the things that maybe we don't have as much of these days, which is probably a good thing if you're getting into a hot car. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really the story, right? Uh, you mentioned Scott picking the right time to take some time off. He didn't check with me, by the way. I, I've been giving him no insight on that uh, for the other Scott. Uh, yeah, but yeah, you, we're yeah. looking at temperatures. So this is the warmest stretch of the year so far, really, in terms of uh, those daytime highs. We've gotten around 30 at times this year already, uh, late uh, May into early June, but the overnight lows were cooler then. Now we're looking at overnight lows in the high teens, low 20s, and of course that humid X value, how the body feels if it if it's down to how uh, your legs stick to a bench seat or uh, the more scientific version is the fact that your body just, uh, the sweat on your body just doesn't evaporate as easily in this type of saturated air mass. So that's why uh, we feel a lot warmer uh, when we experience this type of weather. The scientific description is way less disgusting sounding, I'll be honest. So thank you for that. It has though been, Ross, it has been, and I think many people probably this week as they get into this are probably thinking the same. It's been a weird year. I mean, it was, we had a, a heat wave back was it March or early April where we were all out in our shorts and then it got stupid cold for a while. And then it's been unseasonably either really, really wet or not as warm as usual. I mean, my family and I, we got into the pool for like the first time a week ago. It's been a weird summer. Yeah, well, I think anytime there are, there's an unsettled pattern uh, with the potential for some showers, thunderstorms, uh, sort of the back and forth with temperatures. It's all very specific in terms of where you are and, and how many, for instance, over the long weekend uh, areas uh, just to the north of us, so up around cottage country, for instance. Uh, uh, around Aurelia and Southern Georgian Bay, Lake Simcoe, they didn't see as much rain as as we did. So uh, that allowed for some warmer conditions and uh, a better time enjoying enjoying the long weekend. Uh, but yes, we've we've had the ups and downs. Uh, we are experiencing this warm weather. It's not going to last for weeks on end at this point. It, it does look to be confined in terms of this really high heat and humidity. Uh, we'll be confined to Tuesday. Uh, well, today, Wednesday, and Thursday, and by Thursday night, uh, we'll start to see a cold front push through that will likely, likely initiate more showers and thunderstorms. 
And not that it's going to be really cool over the weekend, but we're just talking more of the high 20s variety when it comes to temperatures heading into the weekend. And that Humidex will be a little bit more into the comfortable range, which is into the low low 30s. This may be a ridiculous question, but is any of it, I mean, we always have heat in the summer, so I know that it's not like it's crazy weird that we've got heat now, but is any of what we've been going through in the unsettled circumstances and maybe not as hot until now, has any of this had anything to do with the smoke that has been covering the, a lot of the country and blocking rays of the sun or anything else. Is, is that factoring in at all to the conditions we've had? Well, smoke can definitely uh, repress temperatures, if you will, because if you've got that haze that we did experience at times uh, last week and over the last few weeks, that can keep temperatures down for sure because it reduce, reduces the, ma- the amount of solar radiation that actually makes it to the ground. And that's how we heat up is uh, when the sun heats up the ground and then we feel it, obviously. So, uh, yeah, that's been an interesting aspect of, of this summer, certainly, is I think what, what has really defined it so far in terms of being different is the fact that we have been experiencing that smoke from wildfires. Because uh, at times last week, we were experiencing a northerly wind. Oftentimes, a northerly wind is a cooler, fresher uh, brand of air for us around the Great Lakes and around the Hamilton area. But that actually led to smoke, a direct connection to smoke from those wildfires farther north into Quebec. And we all know what happened last week with the uh, special air quality statements and so on. And then you start to experience uh, something that, we, you know, as forecasters, we have to look at is the fact that now the winds come from a different direction. They come from the U.S., but that part of the U.S. had smoke as well. So that's why we got into more smoke over the long weekend. So uh, to answer your question, yes, it can affect temperatures. In terms of precipitation, likely not as much, uh, but it is, uh, it is all factored in. And what we are experiencing now, if we do have any special air quality statements, it'll likely be more due to the typical smog that we do experience during the summer months due to other pollutants. I'm not expecting smoke to be a factor, at least for the next few days. Uh, uh, you're not an allergen uh, expert, but ha- has the smoke affected people with allergies? I've been meaning to ask this because a lot of people I've been hearing have been saying their allergies are weird this summer again. And I wonder, well, what else is different other than the smoke? Well, I know I don't know about allergies specifically, but uh, what we have been experiencing uh, with the smoke is something called VOC. So I don't know if you've talked about this already, but volatile organic compounds. And when those compounds react with sunlight, I know some people not only mentioned that they smelled, you know, the smell of a campfire when they headed outside yep, when we yep. had some of that really bad air quality, but they they smelled the kind of tire burning smell, and that's that's what happens when those VOCs. Uh, start to interact with sunlight. So uh, every, obviously, you know, the impact on everyone would be different. I think people uh, definitely with uh, heart disease, asthma, lung disease are particularly vulnerable under these types of conditions. So it hasn't been easy. And I I know just uh, anecdotally talking to, uh, you know, friends that are pretty active during the summer months, they were saying that, you know, just heading outside in some of these really poor air quality days, they could really feel it. Uh, in terms of their breathing and, and how it felt outside. So it's had a wide impact. And uh, well, let's hope that uh, those wildfires are, are more in, in control over the next uh, couple of weeks, because really that's that's the source that we're looking at in terms of the smoke that's been moving south. Well, let, let's hope and let's hope that uh, if you, I mean, I love the heat. So let's hope the heat stays. If you don't love the heat, let's hope it moves out. But we're here for a while, at least for this week. Uh, Ross Hall from Global News. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. I don't know about you. Uh, I can tell you with absolute certainty, the, well, not how many times, but that there have been a number of times that I have either gone to a grocery store and went to buy some kind of meat and maybe, you know, the meat is a little different color, an off shade from what I think looks exactly right. Or you've had chicken in your fridge for a couple of days and you're thinking, oh, we'll cook that. But now all of a sudden you're saying, I, I'm not sure if I'm still good with that, but you don't want to throw it out because that's wasteful. Well, my next two guests have come up with what sounds like an absolutely brilliant idea. They are both graduate students at McMaster University. They've created a new packaging tray that can signal when salmonella or other dangerous pathogens are present in packages of raw or cooked food, like chicken. Shadman Khan and Akansha Prasad are the two people who have come up with this. They join me now. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having us. This, um, as I said off the top, this sounds like something, you know, there are researchers who do things that are really important, but we never actually see 
what it's going to do. This is one of those things that sounds like everybody would use this all the time. One of the most practical things ever. Where'd the idea come from? Right. So that's exactly what our inspiration was behind this. So, you know, foodborne illness is a rapidly growing problem, both globally and in Canada. And of course, to mitigate this, there's been a variety of sensors that have been developed for food contamination, but often they don't have that practical application where they can be used in the consumer setting um, since they can't actually be put into food packaging or in situ, as we like to say. So that's what really inspired us to develop something that was capable of detecting in each food packaging if there was a pathogen present. So Shadman, how does this work? Is this the plate or the, the, the packaging itself? Is this something you slide in between the food and the packaging? What is it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so smart food sensing is something that researchers have been trying to develop for quite a while. What makes it difficult is if you think of like a large piece of chicken, these sensors are pretty small. So there's always been this argument as to whether a small, tiny sensor would be able to detect bacteria or pathogens that are present across various parts of a food product. So what we developed here is a completely new packaging system. So it consists of a tray as well as a few other components that create a miniature lab, essentially, within which that small sensor can be integrated. And the purpose of that packaging system is to localize the juices that are naturally released from the food product. So irrespective of where the bacteria is, the sensor will come in contact with salmonella or E. coli um, if it is present within the package. Akansha, my my initial thought when I hear that is great system sounds really expensive. Is this something that would drive the price of food through the roof if we had to put this in each package? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, throughout our design process, we tried to keep costs in mind. So a lot of the reagents are cost effective. Um, For example, the tray, we designed uh, and used CAD to create a tray for our experiments, but it's something that can be um, designed in facilities where these trays are manufactured. And similarly, other components include um, a membrane to hold some necessary reagents for a sensor. And that, again, was with cost-effective reagents um, that can be purchased for minimal cost in like the sun. Shadman, I don't know a whole lot about uh, salmonella or other things. If there is even one molecule of salmonella in a food dish, in a food tray, does that mean that that food is bad and should be gotten rid of? Or is there a certain level? Because I'm guessing that if it recognizes any of it, people will automatically throw it out. Is that necessary or or is there a way to set it so that there's a reasonable amount or is no amount good? So salmonella is definitely one of the more dangerous foodborne pathogens and the regulatory guidelines around it remain a little vague. At this point in time, it does remain a yes, no um, answer where even if there's one uh, bacteria and it's positively detected, the food is considered um, inedible. Um, So that's generally how it is um, assessed at this point in time. Is this uh, what you've created? Can this be used at any temperature? Because uh, again, what I was thinking is it's one thing to have it in a... um, a display at a grocery store where it may not be as cold as it is if it was in my fridge, but I would still need to know if it was good or not. Can it work regardless of the external temperature? So that's a great question. Um, What we tried to do here, considering that um, we really wanted to focus in on salmonella, um, bacteria grow more at higher temperatures. So as a result, we really prioritized creating a system that would work at room temperature at 37 degrees when it's being heated um, for ready-to-eat foods at grocery stores. And because of that, our salmonella system itself actually performs best at higher temperatures, um, which is why we wanted to target ready-to-eat foods, just because those are foods that aren't cooked further. And as a result, represent a very high risk factor for consumers. Okay, so, so using that then as the example, let's say I had bought one of those things and I put it into the fridge theoretically, if I then said, this is a great system, I'm going to bring it out of the fridge and let it sit for an hour to get to room temperature in my kitchen to test it, would that work? Yeah, we believe that with our existing system, that is a viable scenario. So Akshana, where where then does this go from here? You've got this project, you've got this thing that apparently works really well. Uh, it sounds like it's a brilliant idea that would have widespread application. Do you where does it go? Are we going to see this somewhere? Have you talked to people about this or is this 
step one of a hundred still to go before we see it. Yeah, so for sure. Um, we are fortunate to be able to work with Toyota Kyushu, our industry partner, and they've really helped us um, understand more in terms of the commercialization side of our research, which is um, which is really great in terms of what most people um, are faced with in the lab. So that's something we can definitely see us. And what we think of this in terms of impl- implementation is almost a plug-and-play system where um, this can be interfaced with a variety of different food sensors for various pathogens, um, for different food products, and as well as for different um, consumer t- uh, type of food storage products as well. Um, and even in our own research, we've tried it with produce products such as lettuce and have seen efficacy. Shadman, let me not be too um, financially cold, cold-hearted here, but if you, when you create something like this at Mac as part of your education, if what you create finds an audience, finds a market, and does really well, do you benefit from that financially, or does that go back to the school and to the lab because you did it during school time? Um, so that ultimately just comes down to how different labs operate. In our lab, um, our supervisor very much views our work as a team. So these are technologies that we are patenting and we are included on the patent. Um, in the grander scope, though, um, our overall objective here, especially as graduate students at this point in time, has been more focused on the societal goal. Um, so really trying to address foodborne illness, recognizing that it's a growing issue, especially with climate change, um, and using that as their driving motivating factor. Yeah. Oh, ab- and you know what? Absolutely. And it, it sounds great. I, I just want you to, you know, I'd like you guys to benefit too. If, if this thing turns out to be huge, why not? You came up with a brilliant idea. Uh, that is uh, Shadman Khan and Akansha Prasad who have come up with this. It's uh, Guys, I, I think it sounds really Fantastic. I, I really do hope that we see this one of these days. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, what a great idea. Uh, this is, you know, as I said, there, there are so many research projects and they're all valuable and they're all great. But every once in a while you find one where you say that seems to have application where we could see that on the market for everybody. It's kind of cool. Most people, and I don't think I'm overstating it by saying this, most people have decided that COVID is in the rearview mirror and are carrying on with their pre-COVID lives, wherever they are, doing their things and not worrying about it so much. Well, the province uh, a little while ago announced that it, due to the drop in rates and the fact that people are beginning to look elsewhere, the province announced that a program that was distributing free rapid tests, you probably picked one up somewhere along the way, walked into Walmart or walked into a drugstore or wherever else, and they handed you a little box, uh, that's going to end. The province uh, is ending it. It actually ended at the end of June. The city of Hamilton, though, is going to provide those COVID-19 rapid antigen tests still. I want to bring in Dr. Brendan Liu. He is Associate Medical Officer of Health for the city of Hamilton. Doctor, thank you for this today. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me... um, why are we continuing to do this? And there's probably a very good reason. I just know that it seems anyway that most people have kind of put COVID in the rearview mirror and aren't thinking about this. Why are we continuing to do it? Yeah, that's a really great question. So so as you mentioned, the, the province is winding down the distribution of these rapid antigen test kits that have been available in grocery stores and pharmacies for, for quite some time through through the pandemic. And, and that program is, is, is now in the process of being uh, wound down. So uh, Hamilton Public Health, along with uh, many other public health units across the province, are uh, providing these test kits uh, and making them available to members in the public should those people still want to uh, uh, test and use these rapid rap, uh, testing kits for, for COVID. Uh, it, it really is most important for those people that would be eligible for treatment for COVID uh, with drugs such as Paxlovid. And that's for people that are older, uh, over the age of 60, uh, who might be immunocompromised, who might have any sort of pre-existing medical conditions, uh, or, or might be uh, currently pregnant. All those people could be eligible for, for treatment for COVID. And so uh, having these test kits available continues to be an avenue through which people uh, can access that uh, that testing and that uh, treatment for COVID. Uh, as you said, we know that the current rates of COVID are are much lower now than they've been uh, anytime in recent memory through the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, 
that doesn't mean that COVID isn't still around or that there aren't still people that are getting COVID, but but certainly it's not like it's been in the, the, the most recent fall and winter, for example. Uh, the other element that still is, is important to consider is that uh, we don't know what this fall and winter has in store either. And we know that we always see more flus and coughs and colds through those fall and winter months. And, and so this is uh, still going to be an, an important element to consider uh, as we look into into the next couple seasons. Yeah, I was going to say, because it seems, and I'm glad you pointed out that the who the people are who this is really right now for, because I am sure when I said at the beginning that the city is still giving it out, there were some people who probably rolled their eyes and said, why are we bothering? They're, it's not necessarily for everybody, is my understanding. You're not suggesting that like we had two years ago or three years ago, everybody should be lining up for these. So definitely we, we really want to highlight those, those people who are at higher risk, who, who treatment for COVID uh, is going to be uh, something that's in the cards for them as, as our target audience for these available. That being said, anyone who is interested and wants to get a kit can come by uh, one of our, our up to 20 sites that are distributing these, these kits. Uh, locations are available on the, the City of Hamilton website uh, to receive uh, some test kits. Um, but, but yes, definitely this is much more important for those people that are higher risk of having a severe disease outcome uh, or, or, and would be eligible for, for treatment. For, for anyone else or really, really anyone who gets sick with any sort of respiratory uh, virus, whether it's COVID or whether it's any sort of uh, cough or cold, all those uh, general tips are still relevant for everybody. The staying home when you're sick and avoiding contact with other people. Um, definitely, if you're un if it's unavoidable to avoid contact with other people while you're sick, wearing definitely wearing a mask uh, and um, really ensuring that you're practicing that that good hand hygiene and hand washing. Those are all uh, still going to continue to be really important elements and tools in our toolkit in terms of protecting ourselves and protecting others from respiratory diseases like COVID uh, or, or other viruses. The province ordered, I don't even know how many millions of these, and I'm assuming the province and, and maybe the city didn't get rid of all the ones they had. Are we still, as a city, are we still buying more of these kits? Is this coming out of taxpayer dollars or are these, all these hundreds of thousands perhaps of kits that are left over that haven't been used yet? So these, these are kits that are being made available to, uh, public health units across the province, including the city of Hamilton, um, to, to be able to, to distribute. So, so these are not something that are being, being bought new, but they are still available through these, these provincial supplies. Do they have, they do have a lifespan, right? Do I remember that there, there is a time frame that they can be still usable or, or are they sort of endless? No, so these these kits definitely do expire, and and I, I would definitely want to recommend that anyone who still has kits on hand that are looking to still be able to use them to make sure to check those expiry dates, and if you need to have them available on hand to uh, make sure you get some some newer ones or fresher ones if you're looking to use them and ensure those haven't expired, uh, and and we definitely would be would be checking for uh, expiry dates on these these kits before before distributing out them out to the public. That is uh, Dr. Brendan Liu, Associate Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Scott. It is, uh, as I say, I've sort of put it back of my mind, I guess, and haven't really been thinking about it, but there are people for whom this is still a, there are still health issues that require this stuff to be considered and tests to be needed. So there you go. You can still get them through the city of Hamilton if you, if you need to get one. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There is no disputing, no question, no debate about the fact that Hamilton has a housing shortage. I don't think there is a single person who would possibly argue against that. We are desperately needing to build more homes. This isn't even the encampment debate. This is just the... We have so many people and rents are going through the roof and prices are going through the roof. We need more supply. Here, though, is a problem. I mean, among other problems, there's lots of them that we face. Are the people, the very people, the skilled laborers, the builders, are the people that we need to be working in this city to build the homes leaving this city? 
A new report by the Smart Prosperity Institute suggests that, yes, they are, that we are, at the same time, we want more skilled builders, we are chasing skilled builders away. Jesse Helmer is the author of the report. Uh, He is a senior research associate at the Smart Prosperity Institute, joins us now. Jesse, thanks for this today. Oh, thanks for having me on. This is... A, I mean, if I say conundrum, conundrum is kind of almost a funny word. Like it sounds like it's not that serious. This is a real problem, a vexing problem the city is going to have that all relates to the same thing is affordability of housing. It is, you know, and it, it's compounded by the fact that, you know, the city is in the broader region basically needs to double home building uh, over the next 10 years. And to do that, it's going to require a much larger labor force, right? You might be able to get some productivity improvements, you know, do things a little bit faster and more efficiently, but you're going to need a lot more skilled tradespeople to do that work. And at the same time, the, the high housing prices, you look at the cost of a single attached home in Hamilton, it's out of reach for people who are earning that kind of income. And so you're, you're kind of pricing out the labor force you need uh, to build yourself out of this housing problem. And it's a real problem for areas like Toronto. It's a real problem for areas like Hamilton. And we're starting to see it sort of spread uh, more broadly throughout the throughout the province. And so I think it is a real challenge. You know, we tried in our report to look at what does it mean for somebody who is like a pipe fitter? You know, if you're a household and you're a pipe fitter and you're a bus driver, right? What does it look like for that kind of household? What about if you're a carpenter and your roommates with somebody who's working retail? How affordable is the city for you, right? Because it's not the same for everybody. You know, if you're a single software engineer and you're making good money, Hamilton is fine uh, as a place to live. But if you are a carpenter and you're making good money, but you're working as a you're in roommate, you're looking at the housing market and you're saying, hey, I want to get out of renting and, and buy my first house, it's, it's, it's going to get out of reach. One of the things though, and I ask about this because we always are hearing uh, people saying, look, university is great, go into a white collar profession, that's fine, but don't forget that there are really, really good paying jobs in the trades. It almost sounds like what you're saying is, yeah, maybe, but even those jobs aren't going to get you where you need to be around here. Yeah, it's not a matter of uh, whether it's university educated uh, professions, you know, or um you know, more skilled trades, occupations. Uh, the problem exists for nurses and teachers too, right? So, you know, if you're a, a nurse and a child, early childhood educator, that's another one of the families we looked at as a, as a sort of case study. You know, they're having a hard time living in Hamilton too, right? And it's, it's a lot cheaper for some people, for example, to move to a place like Halifax, where they would get paid more money and have lower housing costs, or Calgary, where, you know, the same is true for some of these occupations, where you'd be ahead like 20% of your gross income through the combination of more money and less money spent on housing, right? So that is a huge difference. And, you know, the the government of Alberta is running recruiting campaigns all over Ontario, trying to get people to move there because of this exact differential, right? The cost of housing is so much less in a place like Edmonton or Calgary than it is in Hamilton. And they need those same skilled traits, right? So people are starting to look around and they say, well, maybe I should move to Brantford or maybe I should move further away and move to a place like Calgary. And I think we're starting to see that migration. It certainly comes out in the data. Why not? Okay, so it it makes all the sense in the world what you're saying, but at the same time then, why not just commute? If you are a skilled tradesperson, why not just commute to Hamilton and still work here? Or what we're saying is the distance you would have to actually drive to find some place that you could afford puts you out of commuting range. Yeah, I mean, that that has been going on for a while, right? And I'm sure we all know people who moved out of the city into, a, you know, smaller areas around the city, and they do drive. But, you know, it starts to get to the point where, you know, if your first step in the morning is driving an hour to get to work, and you're stuck in traffic, because it's so congested, because there's so many people who <laughs> live in the area you're trying to get to, right? People who've come in from the Brantford side of Hamilton in the morning know what I'm talking about. Uh, you don't want to do that, right? And if you can get paid more money, you can live 15 minutes away from where you work in Calgary. I mean, eventually you're going to find somebody you know in Calgary and they're going to tell you about that and you're going to say, hey, maybe I don't have to live here at all, right? I can just move. And I think the the effect is kind of lagged, right? Because you've got lots of people who are in housing. They bought it when it was less expensive, right? They're not feeling this pinch right now. It's people who are thinking about getting into these fields in the first place or they're thinking about moving to Hamilton, right? And what we're seeing is that they may be choosing other other places, right? They're not coming here in the first place. So we're definitely seeing a lot of people, like it's accelerating people moving to places like St. Catharines or Niagara region from Hamilton. 
So what do we right? do about that's this? Definitely. What do we do about this? We got 30 seconds left. I mean, and that's not nearly enough time. I grant you there's a huge answer here, but is, is there a solution or is it just a conundrum we're not going to get around? It needs to be a relentless focus on building more housing, especially family-friendly units, like three-bedroom units, whether they're apartments, townhouses, you know, single detached, if you can find land for it. Uh, you have to build more family-sized units. Um, otherwise, you're going to see, keep seeing this uh, phenomenon keep, keep happening. Jesse Helmer, uh, the report, if you want to give it a read, the institute.smartprosperity.ca uh, Smart Prosperity Institute. It's a it's a really interesting thing to read, and uh, certainly one that brighter minds than mine are going to have to try wrapping themselves around to try and figure this out because it is uh, it is a problem. Jesse, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. July 1st was the beginning of free agency. I mean, I guess the draft was really the beginning of the season, but. <clears throat> Anyway, free agency by Saturday evening, every Toronto Maple Leaf fan, it seemed, thought that Brad Tree Living, the new general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, was the worst executive in all of sports history as almost all the Leafs free agents walked away. By Monday, they had turned tide and apparently now Brad Tree Living was the best general manager in the history of sports. Ryan Kennedy is a senior writer with the Hockey News, joins us now. Ryan, how are you today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. So this is uh, this is the roller coaster that is being a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, going from life is over and we are not going to make the playoffs to hey, uh, let's reserve University Avenue again for next July because we're going to need it. It, it is pretty wild. It is, and you know, as much as July first is kind of like the day, you know, Christmas for free agency, uh, it's not the be all end all, and oftentimes it's smart to make sure that. You get what you want and you don't overpay for things and, and sort of have that perspective uh, because, you know, we've, we've seen it before. A, a lot of bad deals can get signed mm. July 1st as well. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think, you know, what Bradshaw Living did is, is obviously a, a little more clear at this point. You know, you talk about the bad deals. Before we get to what the Leafs did, let's talk about what they didn't because they let a bunch of guys walk. And it seems like, and other people have mentioned this, it seems like almost everybody who left the Leafs got a deal that was way higher than they had come in with or that people thought they were supposed to get. And a lot of people are now saying this is the Toronto effect. There's such a spotlight. There's so much attention that a guy like Luke Shen who came in and it looked like his career was almost done and he wasn't making much money and now gets a long deal with Nashville for a lot more money than he had. Does Toronto amplify everyone and make them look better to other GMs? I don't think so. Uh, you know, all these other teams have analytics departments. They have their capologists. Uh, with Luke Shen, for example, his stock had been rising uh, for a few years before he even got to Toronto uh, when he won the Stanley Cup. And I think what we saw, you know, when in Vancouver is he was doing sort of more than he, uh, you know, was expected to uh, with the Canucks. And, and they had a pretty horrid defense core, uh, you know, besides him and Quinn Hughes. And, you know, he really played that playoff role for the Leafs that they needed, where you could see the experience he had as a member of the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, you know, a, a few years prior. And, you know, he had that physicality, but he was also playing just safe, simple hockey, you know, allowed his blue line partners to do their thing. Uh, so I think the word had already been out on Luke Shen. If anything, I guess it's just kind of, you know, fans of the game might think there's a Toronto effect. But I, I think, you know, based on the fact that they haven't won the cup in so long, uh, <laughs> really? it wouldn't be very, yeah, it wouldn't be a very good idea for other GMs to base their decisions on what the Leafs had done. <laughs> The other thing that's really interesting that happened with the Leafs and with some other teams as well, but the Leafs, it's very obvious for fans here, is at previous free agent years, it's all been about long-term contracts. The Leafs guys, the, the bigger name guys they brought in, all on one year. I mean, really short-term deals. Now, there's a reason for this. The salary cap is expected to go up next year, which will mean free agents will have more opportunity to make money. But if everybody is lining up to be a free agent next year. Some guys are going to get squeezed out. Nonetheless, for now, it's really interesting that you could be looking at a team that is here and gone really, really quickly. Very true. 
And, you know, I, I think you kind of nailed it there you know, with the cap expected to go up in the coming years. Um, you know, I'm just talking to agents at the draft. This is something very much foremost on their minds, uh, not only with unrestricted free agents, but with younger players who might be heading into their second or third contract saying, okay, well, do I want a bridge deal where I sign for maybe two years right now? And then once the cap is up, that's when I go for eight years. Um, so, you know, you've got some guys on kind of prove me contracts like a John Klingberg, for example, I would even put Max Domi in that category at this point in his career. Although I really did like his playoffs with Dallas. Um, and then you have a guy like Tyler Bertuzzi who looks at the market and says, I, you know, I am one of the more valuable guys out there. Um, I'll do a one-year deal now, but maybe once things open up cap wise, I can really cash in and, and do that multi-year deal that might be, you know, the last or second last contract of my NHL career. Yeah. And we got to run, but I mean, it really, with so many guys trying to set themselves up to be a free agent next year, one good thing, if you're the Leafs, I suppose, is when you've got all these guys on one-year deals, they'd better be good this year. I mean, if everybody's going to be a free agent next year, just about, you better have a great year if you want to score big, because that'll, you have an off year, you're in trouble next summer. Indeed. And, you know, you think about extensions too, obviously, you know, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, uh, you know, those are huge names on the Leafs that are looking towards their next contracts already, even though they're already set for this season. So, yeah, there's going to be a, a lot of chances for, for guys to make money this upcoming season, that's for sure. That is Ryan Kennedy, senior writer with the Hockey News. Ryan, thanks for doing this. You're welcome. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A battle going on right now, and I, I don't, maybe a war, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, between Canada's media and the federal government and the big companies like Google and Facebook. And it all involves Bill C-18 and whether the huge companies are going to continue to put the local media, Canadian media's stories where they have been easy to find for people, or as they say, whether they're going to be blocking them essentially. Not, I mean, we'll call it that for lack of a better description. This is, uh, this is a mess right now. And Yet we look at Australia, who was in a similar situation about a year ago and somehow came out of this okay. How did they come out okay and we're staring down the barrel of a gun here in Canada, looking at this like it could go very wrong? Dr. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa. He is also the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and he's a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. He joins us now. Dr. Geist, thank you for this today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Australia was in a similar situation to this and seemed to be all right when it all ended. Uh, is there a lesson there for us of something we can do, or are they totally different circumstances? They're not totally different, but I think they're sufficiently different that those that think that we're just going to see a sequel, I think, are, are likely to be mistaken. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, the government seems to have made a big bet that, in fact, this will be like Australia, that uh, tech companies will express concern, but at the end of the day, they'll cave. We ought to recognize there are some differences. For one thing, the legislation isn't identical. The Australian government carved out for themselves a fair amount of flexibility about who was even subject to the law, so that when it came time to negotiate and try to find some middle ground, there was room for both the companies and for the government to do so. And in fact, the law has never been applied to them. It hasn't been applied, frankly, to anyone because they struck those deals. That's not what we have in Canada, where the law received royal assent just a week or so ago. And once it takes effect, the companies are in. And there's really no flexibility in that regard. So, you know, the government is hoping to have some kind of negotiations, but its options are a lot more limited because they're just tinkering at the edges a little bit with regulations. But I think it's more than just that. Part of it's the law, but part of it also is the economic circumstances have changed. You know, Facebook was pretty flush when they were negotiating those deals. Now they're laying off tens of thousands of workers. The amount of news on that platform has gradually diminished. And I think perhaps most importantly, the fact that other people are paying attention, are looking at what takes place in Canada. I think the companies like Facebook want to be able to send a message to say, hey, we really do have a line that we won't cross. And paying for links is that line. 
And you don't stop talking. You can keep talking about Australia, where we may have found a way to have a resolution. But then take a look at Canada, where we said this is what we were going to do, and we had went ahead and did it. I would have to believe that um, Canada is a pretty easy market for them because we're not that big. I don't know that. I mean, despite what we like to believe about ourselves, I don't know that we're really in the grand scheme of things all that important when there's an entire world out there. It, it almost seems like we are a perfect guinea pig to send a message to the rest of the world. Well, I think we are. I think that we are a, a country that they can use to send a message. I mean, listen, we're bigger than Australia, uh, but the numbers are big, too. Uh, the government anticipated, and, and I always kind of shake my head in amazement, the government and the lobbyists behind this legislation anticipated hundreds of millions of dollars for links. We aren't talking about copying articles. We're talking about links, most of which, I'm going to say like Facebook, are posted by the publishers themselves. So publishers post the links and then turn around and say, we want Facebook to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for the privilege of sending traffic our way. I mean, is it any wonder these companies say, hold on a second, that's just not economic. For, for Okay, so just to clarify this for the people who are trying to keep up with this story, because it is an evolving story and it's confusing at times. Th this situation, I explain, take a minute and explain what exactly C-18 is demanding and what the companies, that the tech companies are balking at. Yeah, well, I mean, at its heart, it is about payment for links. And the objective of the legislation is to force the tech companies and the media companies to negotiate some sort of agreements largely premised on the links that exist between the two sides. Now, there's already many agreements that exist between Google and Facebook and many of the media companies, but they're paying typically for content. So they say, listen, if you give our subscribers or our users access to content that's behind a paywall, or you let us post full text of your article and run ads against it so we can generate some revenue, you know, then quite clearly they're willing to pay. But this goes well beyond that. This simply says the links that exist in the parlance of the legislation, facilitating access to the news, including just linking, um, is what is compensable here. And oddly, it's only compensable on a couple of platforms. So the link to a news article, if it appears on Facebook or Google, is compensable. But if the same link appears on Twitter or on Microsoft or on TikTok, well, then there's no compensation required. Yeah, it, it is very confusing. And it's um, and here's the thing that it appears and I mean, from where I'm sitting and I mean, you're way closer to this than I am. But the way this has been going, it just it looks like Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez is digging in more and more and more. I, it just it seems hard to imagine at this point that the government is going to say, oh, okay, we'll back off and we'll change everything. It seems they're going the other way where they're trying to dig in more on this issue. Well, they don't have a ton of options. You know, as I said, the law's already passed, so they can try to use regulations as a mechanism for dealing with it. But I think they've shown their cards pretty continuously. You know, even Hamilton area MP Lisa Hepner uh, at one point in time said online news wasn't real news. It was a clear signal that the, the all the support here is for some of the legacy providers, not even accounting for the emergence of some of the really innovative digital first publications that are servicing communities across the country. So I think the government's got a pretty clear sense of who it is that they want to support. Uh, and you're right, it certainly does feel like they're digging in their heels. But you know, at the end of the day, it sure seems like the legislation they've crafted basically left these companies with a choice. They said, if you link, you're going to have to enter into these deals and pay. If you don't want to pay, then don't link. And it's as if they felt that, well, surely the companies would never walk away from this. But in a world where if you're Facebook and news constitutes just 3% of people's feeds and they know it's highly substitutable, people spend the same amount of time on the platform, whether it's linking to a news article or looking at pictures from friends, the idea that they're willing to pay anything, in this case, hundreds of millions for just links, um, I think should have, should have struck the government as, as a pretty high-risk proposition. Well, uh, you have been sending up that warning for a long, long time, and um, we, we'll see when, if at all, they listen to it. Uh, Dr. Michael Geis from University of Ottawa, thank you for this. Uh, thanks for having me. Fascinating story continues to be this whole story around the submersible that went down or tried to go down to Titanic and tragic and all kinds of, of things that we're learning about this. Well, there are now some who are saying this was kind of do destined to failure maybe from the start. 
that there were things that were either overlooked or things that we might have seen here or signs that perhaps if not this time, another time, something might have gone wrong. Uh, Jack Rodzilski is a professor in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University. Joins me now. Uh, thank you for doing this today. Appreciate your time. Uh, thank you. So you are one of those who thinks that if not, maybe this time, some other time, th this was, would you say this was destined for failure or was likely to fail at some point? What would be your, your take on how we would describe this? I would say that this incident perhaps is indicative of something that um, was moving in the direction of eventual failure. Uh, because I think first we have to acknowledge here the tragic loss of life. But second, at this point, about two weeks after the fatal June 18 accident, we want to attempt to figure out what contributed to this tragedy. And what I'm suggesting is that beyond the technical and engineering reasons for the uh, submarine implosion, that we need to look at the organizational culture of the company that engaged in these high-risk uh, activities of exploration or tourism, and that we should uh, consider how the organizational culture of the company contributed to an operation that did not follow principles that guide organizations which traditionally work in high-risk environments. I want to talk a couple of the things that you mentioned, because there's two in particular that I find really interesting and, and probably very applicable to other jobs, other explorations, other inventions, whatever else. I think they're really, uh, really interesting. The first one, you point out that companies that look at near catastrophes and mistakes that have happened before as, well, they were near misses, so they're kind of successes because they didn't go really wrong. Some people say, oh, well, look, that's proof that we are doing okay. You're saying, no, no, maybe you should look at it like we had a near miss. That's proof that maybe we were close to catastrophe and we should have done better. Uh, yes, because uh, organizations like government space agencies or militaries with nuclear submarines or aircraft carriers or the firms that operate nuclear power plants, when there's any type of incident or accident that's a close call, these organizations do not view these near misses as a proof of success. They view these near misses or accidents or close calls as a very, very serious flaw in the entire operation. And what this um, incident, what the submersible uh, suggests perhaps, is that the Ocean Gate Company did not operate in terms of how a high reliability organization operates. In other words, previous incidents of close calls and near misses should not be viewed as a success and let's quickly do this again, but should be very worrisome to go back and figure out to the greatest extent possible why those other uh, incidents happened prior to this very tragic event with loss of life. I don't know if you saw this that was on social media today. I saw it just this morning. There was a roller coaster in the States somewhere uh, that somebody was riding this roller coaster and as they were going along, saw one of the beams that was holding one of the highest points and it had cracked and they were noticing when the roller coaster went by, it moved. They then alerted the people at the park. Now, those people have shut it down to fix this. To your point, I would look at that and say, okay, if that roller coaster is back open in 24 hours because they've simply welded that spot together, I might be very reluctant to go on that thing unless they take the time to make sure every joint in this thing is looked after because if one can fail, other things can fail. Yes, and uh, that's an example, again, of a, of a high reliability organization which does not have these accidents, practices resiliency meaning that there's backups for the So in the case of the roller coaster, you don't have one beam, you have three beams supporting it. In the case of this uh, submersible implosion incident going down very close to the Titanic, if you send down one vehicle, you have another rescue vehicle actually shadowing that vehicle in case something goes wrong. 
So in other words, backups for the backup. Right. The other thing you say that I found so interesting here as far as why this might have been, as I say, if not predictable, then worrisome was a lot of companies that do these kind of things, not necessarily going to Titanic, but the high risk things, simplicity is not always what you should be shooting for. Sometimes these crafts or these whatever you're building, they are by nature complicated and simplifying them to a point where they look like anybody could operate them or anybody could build them might be some red flags. Yes, because if we think of a, some, an environment like a um, cockpit of a jet aircraft or a control room of a nuclear power plant, these are very complex operational places because the uh, operators realize that in a very, very complex environment, there's a potential that something could always fail in new and unexpected ways, and there's no corners cut. Everything is not made simple or expedited for any reason. Uh, uh, for example, I've heard reports with the submersible explosion that uh, a video game type controller yes. was used to control the vehicle. And that indicates to me potentially a red flag of um, simplifying an operation, which at its base is very complex and that can have a very bad uh, ending. Unfortunately, like what we saw with this um, submersible disaster. You know, again, I, I don't know enough about this submarine to say exactly whether having a simple operating system like that is good or bad. I'll leave that to you. But I do think that if I was going to go down there, I would like to see something. I don't want to go down there in a machine that I could operate. That's why I'm hiring someone who presumably knows what they're doing because these things are complicated. Uh, yes, not only uh, the operation of the machine, but like uh, th think of a, a submarine cruise with the um, with, with the navy. How much training right. these men and women engage in to basically be prepared to help themselves out in any types of disaster situation. They realize they're putting themselves at risk, but there's years of training. There's backup upon backup upon backup. There's overlays of systems, there's suspenders for the suspenders to make sure that these complex operations stay safe to the extent possible. And that's why we don't hear about um, nuclear power plant meltdowns every other day, or we're not hearing about aircraft carriers failing or submarines sinking because there is safety upon safety upon safety where these organizations have backups for the backups or suspenders for the suspenders <laughs> in order yeah. to keep things safe. Sometimes it is better to wear pants or uh, suspenders and a belt at the same time, even though it may seem <laughs> a little much. Uh, Jack Rodzilski, a professor in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University. Thanks for doing this today. Really interesting. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is our show. That's all the time we got. We'll be back tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Uh, thank you to Tom, who is still burping up hot dog smells right now. Uh, appreciate you. I uh, am hot dog. He has become fully hot dog. Thank you to uh, Will. Will, who today is celebrating eight years at CHML. So way to go, Will. Um, great job, as always. Don't know where Will. Will has left. He took an early day out because it's his eighth year anniversary here. So he just departed. Gone to get a hot dog or something. And uh, thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to our guests. As I say, back at three o'clock tomorrow. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great night. Oh.